therapy's fun sometimes. Like oh, self yes. self discovery <laughs> is a very fun thing, and epiphanies are a very funny thing. And how simple and straightforward they are. It's like oh, two plus two equals four. Oh yeah, no shit. <laughs> But that's that's a lot of it. A lot of that discovery are these incredibly obvious things that you've been blind to. Hello, and welcome back to The Pleasure Ethic. I'm Javier Cortez, joined by my co-host Elena Letourneau. And today, we have more of a conversational episode about therapy bum 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 <laughs> that scary amorphous thing that people seem to still have a lot of negative feelings and associations with and really the impetus for this episode is to demystify therapy even from people of my generation but yet still i know so many people who have never seen a therapist are petrified to go see a therapist and have a lot of negative and dare I say somewhat ignorant ideas of therapy. Elena, does any of that resonate with you? Oh yeah. You know, I think again in California and where I'm at, it's it's pretty normalized. I'm also noticing that like more more upcoming generations are normalizing it more and you know, I love the memes that are like, I saw this one meme that was like a boomer whispering about therapy and a millennial being like, you know, out loud. And, and I think there is still a lot of stigma. You said something though, like, why are people afraid of therapy? Why do you think that is? Because of, of the stigma of it, of it, you go to therapy because you're unwell, because there's something wrong with you. I think fundamentally that's what it's shrouded in and then possibly extrapolating that further it's scary to peel back the onion of our psyche and yeah, explore that's, trauma Ugh. that's you probably know. the the like in the background of yeah something's wrong with me um i've heard people say like it's it's weak like mm-hmm. if you you know the idea like you need someone else's help to deal with your shit yeah i'll do um yeah but i'll also say this we're all fucked up and we all need help in some way so it's just like (laughs) you know i'll I'll go there i'll say it yes if if you're if you're scared that therapy says that you need help yeah motherfucker you do need help we all need help but it's like yes and it's not a it's not a bad thing it it really isn't if you break your arm you're not gonna say well Put some dirt on it. You know, you're going to go to the doctor. You're going to get a cast. You're going to get surgery. If you're struggling mentally, what's the difference? And our mental struggles manifest itself physically and give way to things like addiction, which is another fundamentally misunderstood aspect of our society and people within our society. So it's like, yeah, you might be a little messed up. You might need to talk to a therapist. Welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. We're all part of it. (laughs) whether you want to be in it or not. But of course, you know, there there's better ways that you can color it and describe it to people without saying, yeah, you're fucked up and you need therapy, even though it's, <laughs> it's the truth really. Yeah. 
But I think like you're saying, and I was saying, you know, I, I see a lot more people being like normalizing therapy mm-hmm. and normalizing in a way of like, this is part of our life. Like we, we go to therapy because we learn things we can't otherwise. And I have young couples coming to me sometimes and their goal, which I love is to start their relationship out on a good foundation. It's not because they have issues. It's because they want to prevent having deep seated issues. And I, I think that's a really, really healthy, robust perspective. Absolutely. Preventative care. I mean, preventative care. Exactly. But no, that that's great. You know, that, that idea of we don't have issues, but we want to find better ways to expand our emotional literacy. Ah, yes. Expand our emotional literacy, our relational literacy, you know, all the things that we're getting, you know, poised here to talk about how to have great sex, how to navigate good boundaries. All those things, which is interesting. Can I go on a little tangent? Go for Actually, it. Actually, this is something that um, came up for me recently. Like, I think about couples therapy versus individual therapy. There's a significant difference in going in as an individual. Like, I want to work on my shit, whatever, mm-hmm. whether it's trauma or addiction or a myriad of other depression, anxiety, and going in for sort of more relationship focused therapy. I started to realize and I'm just starting to think about how that's a really different focus and an important distinction. No, sure. I think even just at a baseline level, when you get comfortable with the practices of going to a therapist, sometimes at the very beginning, it's just, I just need to talk to somebody. Totally. I just yes. need to express what went on in my day. And sometimes when you start talk therapy, that's really all it is. You go into their office or you log on online and it's just essentially what happened during last week? How's your week been? Yes. Where are you at? And really it's, it's gaining that comfort with somebody before we start to get into like any treatment plans or anything like that. It's simply just sharing yourself. That's really all it is um, at, at a fundamental baseline level. Yeah. And I think that's what's really good about individual individual therapy. It's like that. It's, it's really focused on you. What is going your relationship with yourself? What's going on inside of you? Hopefully in the presence of someone that brings one of my favorite therapeutic terms, unconditional positive regard, because I think that is a missing experience for most of us to be able to to go to someone and talk about what's going on for us and not, and, and to have the space and curiosity to explore and be supported rather than judged, fixed, shamed, whatever we're doing to each other all the time. Whereas relationship focused therapy, like as a relationship coach, someone who works with individuals and couples both, but is focused on the relationship. I'm like, you know, like have some therapy and then come see me. (laughs) <laughs> now now we're going to get into how to relate to each other. And before we can relate to each other, usually I think we, we need to understand what's going on with us as an individual. Sure. Again, that kind of idea of emotional literacy as a prerequisite to graduating to these bigger things. And, and ideally yes. in a perfect world, we have our own emotional literacy and self-awareness before we get into relationships, but we know most times 
that ain't how it works. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. Yeah. We're, we're skipping but classes. Also, you know, I think in, I, you know, with support and stuff, it's relationships where we really start to learn yes. about ourselves. We, mm-hmm. it's hard to, you know, we can't, we can't. And in the, even with the therapist, that's a relationship in which we're learning about ourselves. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's never, nothing ever goes sequentially in a linear fashion, usually no. with how we understand ourselves in our emotions. Definitely not. There was one more thing I wanted to get into before we start talking about first contact and, and some of our personal experiences with therapy. And this is a, a fascinating thing that I've kind of noticed generationally with millennials. So, you know, me being a millennial and then the Zoomers, right? Gen Z, right? Gen so millennials Z. and Gen Z, because there's so much more open with mental health and mental awareness in the beginning yeah. from jump as compared to previous generations before, or even older millennials. It's this interesting dichotomy of, so older millennials and generations before that are very tight-lipped Gen about, X. and Gen X, about all these things, right? To the point of the, the, the major extreme is that it doesn't exist. All, all, all these notions about who we are and, and diagnoses and illnesses, you, you know, that's just a new age kind of weakness that these generations have. So that's that's the extreme on one end. But what I'm finding with younger people in my age is that they will take it to a place of like self-diagnosing and oh, yeah. assuming what they have and diagnosing others and taking these <laughs> ideas of projection and narcissism to whole other extremes where they're almost doing the beauty of their openness a disservice because they're they're taking it almost too far in some ways. And it's oh, man. fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to be surprised by this, but I got thoughts on how we separate the generations and like these, you know, I, I hate big generalizations about any group of people, however we want to define a group of people. I really feel like Gen X is sort of the invisible generation between millennials and baby boomers. Like everybody forgets about us, which is par for the course. There's great memes out there about it. Spot on. But I think it's our generation. Actually, we, we, in my generation, my experience is that we are the first to start to destigmatize therapy. My dad was a classic anti-therapy, like egotistical braggart, like, that's ridiculous kind of bullshit attitude. Um, and I wanted to be a psychologist. By the time I was 18, I knew this was, so, I knew somehow I was going to do this work. And then what you're speaking to about my kids generation and younger is I, I feel similarly too. There's, there's a way that it's getting like sort of meaningless in, in all of this self-diagnosing and diagnosing, but the truth buried in that, which I do appreciate is that we're all fucked up. We all are suffering from mental and emotional health disorders. So we can now stop thinking about it as a failure at the individual level and start seeing it as a failure at the systemic level, which it really is. Yes, they're onto something. Yeah. They are. By broaching the topic, by trying to pathologize their friends or their family or (laughs) older generations they're on to something yeah it's just the problem of extending that pathologizing and prescribing to a degree where it's like calm down a bit let's leave some of the end work to the experts let's let's have some patience with it but they are on to something 
What's interesting when what you just said too, I think is really significant is the pathologizing of themselves and each other, because that is actually the only language we, that's the language we have for all of this. We have the language of pathology, which is something I really emphasize in the way that I work. You know, I don't want to pathologize us anymore. I want to see, as we've already sort of established in our many conversations, that we got here for a reason. Our mental and emotional health issues are really adaptations. They're strategies. We we develop them for a reason. They are reasonable responses to unreasonable circumstances and stimulus. And so what I'm really interested in a lot of the time is pivoting away from the lens of pathology and toward the lens of possibility and what, you know, okay, we can, we can figure out what's gone wrong. And I say insight can get only get us so far. I think that's important, but over here is the like, well, how do we know what, how do we get what's right? How do we go right? What works? What feels good? What new practices, narratives, perspectives, experiences are going to start to shift this, you know, and to move us away from all this dysfunction and pathology. And first we need the language and the skills to do so. Broadening that scope, this, this practice of pathologizing, prescribing, categorizing is so much part of our culture in general with people's politics views on society or kind of going back to episode zero, where you talked about this this air of like liberal fascism that imbues the place that you live. We're just, we're so ready to put people in a box. And there's an irony to mm-hmm. that when you consider there's more space and more discussion for ideas of being non-binary within our gender expression or within our sexuality. But then we kind of do the opposite by categorizing people so fast and weaponizing categorization, weaponizing pathology. It's, it's weaponizing identity. Yes. Yes. And so we almost, it's almost to an extreme where we're, we're using it the wrong way now on the extremes, of course, not everybody's like that. We're we're not doing that with each other. Um, But it, it is an interesting subset of our population within this country on that other end of the spectrum, for sure. You want to hear a funny anecdote? Go for it. <laughs> I've recently self-diagnosed. Well, I, I self-diagnosed a couple of years ago with the, something that's not in the DSM. I diagnosed myself with chronic dissatisfaction, especially <laughs> when it comes to romance. <laughs> okay. I'm moving out of that, but I thought that was a funny one. More recently, I've self-diagnosed with ADHD. You know, I'm totally jumping on this bandwagon. Yeah. Um, it's hot. It's hot. And it's, you know, it's funny. I've, I think it's true actually, like now that I've sort of like laid it out and looked at my behaviors compared to the diagnosis, I'm like, Oh yeah, I bet I do. And at this point I have like zero interest in following through with that in any psychiatric way. I know more about myself and and how I cope and how I deal and what my strengths and weaknesses are than any psychiatrist is going to do. And I certainly am not interested in medicating myself more than I already have in my life. But I think I just wanted to say that like self-diagnosed over here. No, I I love that you brought up that anecdote of of self-diagnosing 
but that feeling of you want to jump onto this bandwagon, like it, it's just part of the human condition to just want to be a part of a group. Yes. It's, it's just such a natural aspect 100%. of our humanity. And it's sometimes it's something that I really hate to accept and don't like to hear about that is something that we do. But that's also part of, again, my generation and Gen Z. It's, oh, okay, well, well, well they're a part of this group and they're a part of that group. Where do I fit in? What's my shit? What's my, what's my yeah. diagnosis? And yeah. so we do that because we want to be in that group. And that's it's not even about that even being bad or okay or good. It's just understandable. It makes sense. Yes. And I think it's twofold. I think it's that. Like I belonging is mm-hmm. a huge human motivator and need. Like we need to belong. We we're yes. social animals. That is primal. And I, I think the other side of this, the other aspect of some of this too, and, and it and it gets tangled. But it is explaining why I feel fucked up, why I feel like I don't belong, why I feel like I'm, it's not working for me. So there's, there's a little bit of that too, of like, oh, I'm neurodivergent or, oh, I have this anxiety disorder. This makes sense for why I can't meet these unreasonable standards of our unreasonable failing society. And I think that's the, that's the most equitable empathetic look or kind of way that we can frame what's going on with the younger generations and how they're trying to find their place in this ever expanding fucked up place we call earth. Um, Cause man, <laughs> it's, it's uh what a time to be alive. Cause every, you know, there's, there's just so much to take in and it is so overwhelming and it's so hard to, Yes, to live within a small world if you have internet and a phone. It's just yes. you were forever changed by that. It's, it's had such a huge effect on our psyche and where we try to find our place in the world, especially again for kids today who are growing up embedded to a smartphone. But again, that's we could get derailed. But let's let's get into first contact. Maybe first understanding with therapy, where did we begin? Where did we become aware of this thing? And I kind of want to hear from you first, just okay. because of the generational timeline mm-hmm. that exists within therapy, even though our our backgrounds in childhood is very much different. So I don't expect you to necessarily have a answer or experience that is necessarily lined up with the typical Gen X relationship to, to therapy, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I, I don't know what the typical Gen X experience is. I mean, a lot of my peers are, but anyway, um, not to go off on more tangents. I think that, you know, as you were asking me that a couple of things came up for me and, you know, it's interesting. Like one is like my dad was in retrospect, I think my dad was kind of libertarian. You know, he had this like individualist streak that was arrogant, egotistical, uh, narcissistic. Um, speaking of diagnoses, I can got a lot yeah. for him. Yeah. Uh, and he kind of would peacock around, you know, 
talking shit about therapy and how stupid it was and who needed it and it was weak and blah 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 but I was always curious about how humans worked and but I I think my first the first therapeutic experience I would say I had was a very northern California one you know a lot of my perspectives and and experiences come from the region I grew up in, but a lot of them don't. Like once I left California, a lot of things I learned were not because of being in the Bay Area. They're because of what my life brought me. But this was very Bay Area. When I was 17, uh, my friend group got connected with this woman who was not indigenous, but was leading kids on vision quests. At the time, you know, it was kind of like it was kind of an outward bound kind of thing like it was it it, there were really good things about it like she got us teenagers together we actually had to abstain from substances which for me at 17 was unheard of (laughs) and get ready to go out to the desert and fast for three days and do a vision quest that I put in air quotes because it was not I'm gonna I'm gonna leave the cultural politics aside for now we can get into that another time Let's just say like so many things that I encountered in my life, it was problematic, but it was also my first experience of what I would say was therapy because in the lead up to these trips, we would meet every week and we would sit in a circle and she would sort of lead us through very hippie, very new age kind of things. But it was the first time I started to look inside myself and, and start to parse out what was happening to me internally. So I say that is my first sort of exposure. And I didn't, I wasn't exposed again to therapy until I think I lived in Albuquerque and I was in my 20s and I sought out a therapist for the first time. And I think I've seen probably four therapists in my life, you know, beginning in my 20s through now. Um, And the first two are my what the fuck experiences. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they were like, I'm tr- I'm trying to get help and I don't know who you are, but this is weird and it is not working and I don't like it. And now yeah. I'm kind of mad. Like one was solo. One was the first couples therapist that my ex and I saw who basically sat there and watched us implode. And then our second couples therapist was my first best ever. Like she is the, she is my therapist. <laughs> and then my most recent one sort of put the finishing touches on things for me. He really saw me through the last few years and that was a was a great relationship. So that's kind of my overview. In a way, that sounds like a very a very healthy progression that I think a lot of people who've probably been through therapy can probably relate to if it's very bumpy at the beginning, but then you if you kind of just persevere through it and it's not And by persevere, I don't mean, oh, if that therapist doesn't work, go to another one and then another one and then another one until you find it. The evolution. The evolution of it. That in a way, it's, you know, I can relate to that. I have one anecdote and then I want to hear your story. So the first therapist, the, the story I tell about her, the one thing that I remember was that she tried to get me to talk to my inner child. Mm. And the way that she did that was she had a Raggedy Ann doll and she wanted me to talk to the Raggedy Ann doll. And I was like, that was my, what? that's my number one, what the fuck experience. I was not down for that. I didn't 
we hadn't built a relationship. I didn't, I didn't get it. I thought it was so stupid. And it's hilarious because it still colors. It gave me a bias that I still have against inner child work, mm. even though I have now done inner child work that has been profound and really effective. And I have like, I believe in it. I believe in modalities that help like that deal with our inner little ones, if you will. But I still carry this like, okay. I mean, I even preface it when I work with people. I'm like, I hate inner child work because of this, but we're going to do some now. <laughs> that That's what the kids today call cringe, Elena. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Very cringe. Word. Very yeah. cringe. Yeah. Very for cringe. sure. Yeah. No, that, that All right. I mean, what, yeah. Yeah. What's your story? What's your, what's your story? You, you know, so far? Uh, Again, God bless my mother. She she really tried to normalize therapy at a really young age for us. So without getting into the weeds on her relationship with my father, but they did not have a great marriage, did not have a great relationship. But my mother really tried various things like couples therapy and counseling to which my father gave no effort to. So she found her own therapist and in the midst of that started taking my sister my older brother and I to go see a therapist so she would have her sessions and then my brother my sister and I would all go in for our own individual sessions and granted I was really young so what I remember about going to the therapist at that time is that they had a big jar of Jolly Ranchers and, you know, I've always, since, you know, I was a little kid, I've always had a candy problem. So that's, I was like, oh, we're going to the therapist? Jolly Ranchers today. That's, that's what I'm here for. But just that relationship of going into talking to somebody, even though I can't remember anything of substance. And I think I was at that age, just there because you take one child, you got to take all of them as a parent. So the general talk of, seeing a counselor or seeing a therapist or, or going to a therapy session wasn't this out of the box, highly stigmatized thing within my family, at least not for my mother and for us as kids. So we just didn't see it in a negative way. Now, the first time I actually independently went out and, and, and sought out therapy was... I believe sophomore year of college. Again, without getting too much into the weeds of it, I very much was developing a drinking problem at that age and it was seeping into other parts of my life. So I sought out the counseling center at the university that I was going to and the the counseling program as students we paid for it every semester. It's in our fees, so it's you had automatic access. But what I found within my early trips to going to the counseling center or seeking out therapy was that I was very dishonest with what I needed to get from it. And so I would ostensibly go because I was having problems within my dating life, within my sex life, within my social life, within how I tried to relate to myself, which were all true things. But I also conveniently left out the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm drinking a fifth of vodka every day and, you know, I can't start my day without drinking and all this good stuff. 
you know, all important information a therapist needs to know. So I started off my relationship with therapists by withholding and not fully trusting in the process, which I, I just don't really believe you're going to get too far when you're withholding substantial things like that. Can and I it just was, say, yeah, I go did for that. it. Yeah. In the Most best of therapeutic relationship of my life, the one who is my person, I withheld, I mean, at a similar experience. So I just want yeah. to say like, yeah. Yeah. Shame. Shame is yes. the great silencer. Yes. Even in this space where you're supposed to be safe. Yep. It's it's still hard for a lot of people, myself included, to really, okay, let me give you all the details. Let me tell you everything that's going on. Yeah. Well, it's so, supposed to be safe. Supposed yeah. to be safe and actually being safe and building a relationship to the point in which you feel safe, I think is sure something to touch on later in the episode or at some point. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So fast forward a couple of years, my drinking problem gets further out of hand and I end up dropping out of uh, school and I, uh, my parents put me in a, a rehab facility, a psychiatric uh, ward or the rehab ward of a psychiatric facility. And that was really the first time where I, I, I was in such a vulnerable place. Like when you're going through alcohol detox it's you you can't hide it anymore and it's such a low place so um and that's when i discovered group therapy because that was part of their modality was group therapy with the rehab ward and then you'll have one-on-one sessions with the the nurse practitioner the psychiatrist on hand and that was the first time i ever experimented with uh, psychiatric medicine which i'll skip that for now but if you want to circle back to that we can circle back to that <laughs> okay. um and and that was very revealing. And so I went from inpatient rehab to outpatient rehab, which was way longer, which was, if I remember correctly, about I was in outpatient rehab for about four months. So intensive group therapy, which was really hard. And then after that, I, I finally graduated or I convinced the outpatient psychiatrist that I needed individual therapy. And I had a lot of failures with therapists after that. And then I eventually went back to school, went back to the counseling center, made some progress, but also had some problematic relationships and experiences within those programs. And it wasn't really until I met my last therapist, shout out to Carissa Doster Hoffman, um, love that woman, where I really started to make actual substantial gains within therapy, but it really didn't happen until I became fully transparent and fully honest to do the work. But part of getting there and then part of the reason why I loved her as a therapist for me is that she, she felt familial to me. Mm. She, she looked like my mother in a way. (laughs) She sounded like my sister. So there is a lot of safety within that. And it wasn't, oh, I I see my mother. I hear my sister within this person. I I see a friend, somebody safe, where from the beginning, it was this easygoing and I can share everything. No, no, no. Because we had a on again, off again, patient therapist relationship for about three years. And it wasn't until the last time I went back 
where I really spilled all the beans, really let her know everything that I started to make much more progress. Yeah. Um, Can I comment on that? Go. Yeah. And I'm based, that's my spiel, my therapy history. Well, one of the things I really noticed in what you just said was the difference between supposed to feel safe and feeling safe. You know, this, this was the right relationship. This is the one that built and developed the safety and trust that made you feel like you could disclose everything. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you weren't disclosing and then you did and that made all the difference. You had a therapeutic relationship that made you feel safe enough and held enough that it was time to do that. And then thing, those two things together really started to move things along for you is what is what I'm hearing. No, absolutely. And even when you do have that safety or that what feels like a familial bond with somebody, you still have to jump off the diving board. Oh, yeah. You're, you're still going yeah. into the deep end. It's still a leap. It's that first leap off, that first jump off. It's always going to be scary. It's never, okay, I'm on the end of the diving board. I'm not scared anymore. Now I jump. It's, yeah. I'm still scared, but now I'm going to jump. Oh, okay, I didn't drown. I didn't die. I'm still alive. I'm going to get on and do it again. Still scared. Yeah. jump again, you're going to repeat that process. And then you'll find yourself, you know, doing Learning gamers how to swim and, and backflips yeah. off that yes. shit. And, and that's, that's the progression of it. One, one more thing. And then I, I want to ping pong it back to you a bit, but I also very much remember while I was in inpatient rehab, I, it was a very self-reflective time, but I was just asking myself, why am I here? How did I, I get here? Because I was 22 when I went to rehab and most of my peers were twice or three times my age. So from, from an age perspective, I didn't have a lot of people to relate to. And it was just a very much in a lot of ways at times, like an out of body experience, it, something that was very surreal. And it kind of clicked for me of like, Oh, like I don't really have, I have a drinking problem. I'm here to detox. I'm physically dependent on this stuff, but also there's deeper shit. And that kind of woke me up to like some trauma that I experienced at an earlier age, which I'm not going to get into this episode, but that box unlocked and it was kind of like, oh shit, uh oh, yeah. now, now I remember. And so that made it really hard with fully opening up, fully trusting, going in and meeting various and different therapists. Ooh, as usual, so much in that. You know, I will give a shout out since you did too. I was like, mm -hmm. why, why? I never name her. I don't know why, but Toba Fox. She's Ooh, great name. She's the one for me, man. She, I don't think she sees clients anymore, but she was the clinical director of Engender Inc. in Albuquerque. She opened up my whole world therapeutically. And it was funny. I, I'm not going to get too into the weeds on this either. This will come later. Um, but it was the second session with her that I disclosed my dependency at the time. And I was just like, you know, I was kind of like, you know, just in full disclosure, because I feel like you should know everything, but also like, I'm not here to deal with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is so great. ironic because that was like, that was what I was there to deal with. Really? Yes. I mean, yes. my relationship too, but also like that, that turned out that thing that I didn't want to deal with turned out to be the thing I needed to deal with. But I'm so happy you brought that up and that that makes this transition easier because we've shared our personal experiences, mm. 
But within that, I, I want to go back to how we demystify and kind of for the listeners, people who don't really have a lot of experience with therapy, your experience is fundamentally based on what you want to do. You're fully autonomous within the modality that you want, the treatment that you want. It's all yeah. on your terms. And so many people that I know are so petrified of the idea of therapy. And when I discuss it with them, they're like, I don't want to get into that. Then don't fucking get into that. Yeah. You, okay, you can great. meet a therapist yeah. and say, I don't want to discuss that right now. I'm not ready for that. You can tell a therapist, yes. this is what I'm scared about. This is what I want to stay away from. A great therapist will meet you where you are at. And they respect will. and help you navigate boundaries yes. in that yes. relationship. Yes, yes, yes. And, and I always like to say this, finding a good therapist is like dating. <laughs> you, you know, we've all been on dates. We've all dated a lot of different people. Well, some, most of us, maybe not, <laughs> but <laughs> right. But it's, it's, you have to take that first date. You have to see if there's chemistry. And if there's no chemistry, you don't have to go on a second date with that therapist. If you look at it through that lens of trying to find a prospective person that you're going to enter in a relationship with a very deep, intimate, transparent, honest relationship with, which that is what it's like with a therapist. You have to date. And maybe some of us get lucky and your first therapist that you talk to and it's the one and you're married forever or, or until you're done with that intervention, great, but you have to date around. Just like with your dating life, you could be fully in control of it. You can say no. You can reject if anything. Like a therapist is going to be way more understanding than whoever hopefully. you're going on a date with. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. right? Here's a weird anecdote. Uh, I have a friend who saw a an analyst, like a classic mm. Freudian kind of psychotherapist okay. for years and years and years. And I think he was almost required to go. Like he didn't just go weekly. I think he went like twice a week and he could never not pay her. Like if he went on vacation, she made him pay like it, some weird shit out there, which is also to my point, like what you just said, you know, is that a therapist should yes. respect, but First of all, the very first thing you want to remember is that all mental health practitioners are first and foremost also human. But coming around to that point, I do want to I want to talk a little bit about how I got here. It started with Tova. Tova is an amazing gifted therapist. Like for me, that was the beginning. That was the beginning of my real healing journey. And there were a couple things about it. One is that is when I realized that the therapeutic relationship is a relationship. She was in the room with me. She was present with me. She was emotionally focused. She, she treated me with unconditional positive regard and met me where I was at in a way that I had never experienced before. Oh, there's so much to say about her. <laughs> anyway, um, she was the person who got me unstuck at a, at a time when I was super, super stuck in my life. And I remember one of the things she said to me was like, what do you want to do? Like, what would make you happy? And she encouraged me to fantasize. And at the time I was like, I want to be a travel writer. That's what I would love to do. And I would love to do that. It's a total parallel life fantasy. 
trot like doing chef's table kind of thing. And then, you know, I don't know if it was a week or a month later, but I was like, no, what I want to do is what you do. I want to be you. And that's when I started on my journey. And I started, um, I went to graduate school for counseling psychology. And at that time also, the thing, you know, everything that she did for me personally and in my relationship with my ex, like she was a great relationship therapist. We learned so much about ourselves, about each other, learned skills and tools to navigate our intimacy better. The only thing she had, she said about sex was, I'll never forget it, make the intimacy hot. That was her advice in terms of sex. And it, I still to this day, I'm like, huh, what? She didn't have this. She did not have the skills and the tools to help us in our sex life. And first of all, I think that it's hugely historically lacking in the therapy training, um, which is really unfortunate. But at that point, I was like, well, I need to find a, a more body based modality, less talk therapy. I really need to get into this. And so I did. I sought out a different modality. And at first it was just you know, a therapeutic modality that I wanted to experience personally. And then that blossomed into a pivot of my career path toward coaching. And I ceased pursuing a licensed therapist degree or licensing and a therapy degree because I decided to be a coach so that I could have more freedom in defining the boundaries of the therapeutic relationship so that I could focus on sex and relationships and intimacy. And also at this point, especially through the pandemic, I'm happy that I can work with people all over the country and all over the world. I don't have licenses that limit where I can practice. And it took me a while to overcome imposter syndrome, to feel like I was legitimate in what I was doing without the degree, the license, And I've come to really feel confident, you know, obviously because of who I am and the the experience, training, education, and uh, practice that I have now, I feel very confident in what I do. And I know that a license doesn't make someone, I mean, there, there are licensed professionals out there, there are certified coaches out there, there are alternative practitioners out there, and Some of them are amazing and gifted and have like solid ethics and excellent boundaries. And some of them are quacks and some of them have really big issues. And we know this, like there's a history of abuse in therapeutic and psychiatric relationships. We know this, right? So in navigating all of these options, what I say, and I say this out of the box, first consultation call almost all the time that the therapeutic relationship is going to be therapeutic if the fit is right for you. Not only in terms of what kind of support are you seeking, but what relationship feels right. You know, who's the person that's going to meet you in a way that you feel like you're going to get your needs met and that you're going to be held and be safe, but also be challenged and pushed, you know, to whatever degree meets your needs. Well said. And I think it's, it's important to hear that if you're seeking out some type of treatment, 
don't narrow it to such a hyper specific modality. And I think what you experience with your therapist who you give so much credit, you also saw the limitations in terms of what that therapy provided, mm-hmm. knowing that you needed something other than that too, in, in specific to a sex and relationship coach. And, you know, I've found out to- at times in my 20s, again, if I had a broader understanding of just therapeutic services, I probably would have went to a sex and relationship coach instead of trying to find a therapist who yeah. probably doesn't have the qualifications, probably doesn't have the experience, or just from my side of it, somebody I just don't feel safe with. Whereas if I'm going to go seek out a sex and relationship coach, we know where the conversation is going to go. We know where the services are going to be provided as opposed to a traditional talk therapist. And it's like, how do I start talking about this embarrassing or shameful thing that I feel about my sexuality? And I think that's important for the listeners too, is that don't limit your scope for the types of services that you need. And then second within that, I understand the credibility that going to a licensed therapist provides for a lot of people, myself included, but whether you're going to somebody who has their doctorate or a relationship coach with a different licensing, there needs to be a level of backbinding and skepticism to a degree and parsing out, is this person right for me? And just because somebody has a, a medical degree or a doctorate in this thing does not mean they're the right person for you because ultimately it is about the relationship. It's about the chemistry. And and really what I think is really encouraging about trying to find therapeutic help today is that you can really scale it and modify it to what you want, at least on the category deliverables. And what I mean by that is if you feel more comfortable talking to a man or a woman, you can find that. If you feel more comfortable talking to a person of Hispanic descent, you can find that. It's very easy to pick and choose those things. And again, we are fully autonomous in this. We have the freedom to go about this however we want. And that's a very encouraging thing that people need to know about seeking out therapeutic services. Yeah. And I I think everything that you just described is, is on point. And I think it is also take it into account because people are like, those are some of the first tier requirements for what you need to feel safe and like you can open up and trust this person with your experience. No, absolutely. It's, it's stating around it's experimentation and same also applies to if you're seeking out a psychiatrist or if you're looking to get on psychiatric medicine. Yeah. Um, It really depends on what you're seeking. Um, I did remember something that I wanted to say that I was going to circle back to and it's something else about Tova which is, I mean, she, she gave me so many first time amazing experiences that really, um, you know, in a relational way that I had never experienced. And, you know, it's something that this is, I am going to say what I meant to say, but the, one of the things that I really love about my work and being able to focus on intimacy and relationships is that my office is a relationship lab. 
That's how I like to think about it. Like, I think there's a lot of therapeutic, you know, more traditionalist ways that don't acknowledge their, you know, the job is not to acknowledge your own humanity. It's not to acknowledge that this is a relationship. You know, the practitioner is the expert, is the healer, is the one in charge. And there's a power dynamic. And, you know, I love working in this idea that it's a relationship lab. We're going to experiment here. We're going to find out things, you know, how you feel with me as part of the results that you're going to get. Um, and that was what she showed me. She showed me that this, it was the relationship and how she related to me. And one of the things that she did for me was diagnose me with post-traumatic stress disorder from the trauma of my childhood. Mm-hmm. And up to that point, I would have rejected and been oppositional about any kind of mental, like, even though I was into therapy and wanted to be a therapist, I was not diagnosable. But somehow in that relationship, in that building of trust, the day that she said that to me was a breakthrough moment. It gave me context for what I was experiencing, how I was feeling, how I was behaving, why connecting it back. And it opened up a decade of really focused therapeutic, you know, very therapeutic focus on that aspect of my life and experience, which has been really generative, I mean, not always fun, but incredibly healing. I'm I'm so glad you remembered that in, in the timing of this episode as we get closer to wrapping up, but the experience of being diagnosed, I, I want to touch on that a little bit, but I also first want to hit on, and I don't know if you re- relate to this at time, but when you develop a really solid relationship with a therapist, therapy's fun sometimes. Like oh, self, yes. self-discovery <laughs> is a very fun thing and epiphanies are a very funny thing and how simple and straightforward they are it's like oh two plus two equals four oh yeah no shit <laughs> but that's that's a lot of it a lot of that discovery are these incredibly obvious things that you've been blind to it's fun to know more about yourself to to know more about yeah. your process because then all that white knuckling that we do that we've talked about on previous episodes, like then you really know what to be in control is. And it's by not doing this, not white knuckling it all the time because you actually understand the process of your emotions and why you do the things that you do. And it's fun. It's, it's, It's exciting. It's really exciting. But I think also just within the notion of, or the experience of being diagnosed, it, it, it could be a very scary thing for people. Again, if, if as they're being diagnosed, it's still very much a stigmatized thing, but being diagnosed is a great and beautiful thing because then that starts to allow you to really do the work. And you understand that you're not what you're diagnosed with. It's not your identity. It's just a part of who you are. And, but that's part of that discovery. And it's part of that fun. And if we were to destigmatize being diagnosed, then we don't look at it as something that's negative. It, it doesn't color our perception of ourselves. You know, I got diagnosed with major depression at 22. And it made so much sense. It just made sense of things. 
And it brought so much relief because gone was that confusion of what the fuck is wrong with me? Why can't I get my shit together? And I stopped feeling like a piece of shit. I stopped feeling lazy. I stopped feeling all these things that I couldn't fix within myself. It brought relief. It made it easier. That right there. Mm. Okay. So I want to empower people to recognize that as the helpful thing in being diagnosed. Yes. If you get a diagnosis that feels like an epiphany, like an aha moment and brings you relief, then diagnosis is a good thing. Mm-hmm. I think we overdiagnose. You know, we have a yeah. huge problem, especially in this country, with overdiagnosis and overmedication, especially of children. Yeah. You know, so I can't go with, you know, I can't go with like the, it's a really great thing, but mm-hmm. you brought it home. You brought the, like, that is so critical. I'm going to say it again. If you get a diagnosis that makes it make sense to you and brings you a sense of relief, then that diag- then being diagnosed is generative. I want a sharing authority, right? And it becomes back to the relationship. I'm not here to tell you how to live your life. I'm here to help you discover the process of discovery, which is, yes, fun, generative, satisfying, relieving. Those are all words that I would love to you know, have people coming out of a, of a therapeutic relationship or experience feeling. Not, not to push back on the, the, the response to a diagnosis that doesn't feel right. But I think a, a caveat within that is, let's say somebody gets diagnosed with depression and it brings some type of shame and more stigma. I think there's part of that within our psyche well, why are you feeling that shame? Is it because it's really something that doesn't resonate with you? Or is it this thing that you don't want to wear and you don't want people to know? Again, part of the work of therapy and part of what can make being diagnosed feel healing is destigmatizing just the whole notion of therapy to begin with. Because you could be diagnosed with something that you very much have and only yeah. feel the shame of it because you haven't done the work of, you know, there's this dirty little thing I do on Thursdays. I go meet with somebody and I talk to them about my problems. And then now they <laughs> told me I have this. And it's like, well, shit, you will feel zero relief. But destigmatizing just that whole process of therapy needs to be invited so you can feel relief yeah. and you, you won't have that shame. Let's take it further. And let's destigmatize the seeking out and needing and receiving care and help. Yeah, absolutely. Because we keep saying therapeutic and I just want to say again, you know, like I am a coach. I -hmm. consider the coaching that I do to be therapeutic, but I am not a licensed therapist. And... Yeah. I mean, I think we said it in the beginning. It's like, we we're all fucked up. Yeah. We all, we all need help. So that I think even deeper, like let's stigmatize, like we need each other. We need help and we need care. And I think in a hyper individualistic society, that's, that's the deeper stigma. I mean, shit, getting a personal trainer and somebody to help you exercise. Oh my God. 
I wish I had all the money. I wish I could pay someone to feed me, exercise <laughs> me, clean my yeah. house, but it, but <laughs> is that not, me. But is that not help? Is that not care? You, you know, there, there's a time when uh, my girlfriend and I, when we we had a maid who came and cleaned like once a month. Isn't and it was amazing. It was, I, it was amazing. It was just like, oh god, the laundry's done, or oh, they <laughs> they vacuumed for us because you know life can get so exhausting. So it's like, again, broadening the scope. Whether you're going to somebody who's licensed and has a doctorate in this thing, you're going to a relationship coach, you're paying fifty dollars an hour for somebody to help you exercise. You're getting help. You're seeking out that type of therapy support. that you could yeah, need. That collaboration. Support. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay to say that you need help. All right. So for the pleasure ethic, I'm Javier Cortez. That was Elena Letourneau. Elena, it was a pleasure as always. As always. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.